This is a recording made at the chapel of the opened book under the covering title of the Pleroma, the subdivision, the epistle to the Colossians. At the present moment we are considering seven steps to glory and this evening we are considering the words raised together. And the reading that we are having together is 2 Timothy chapter 2. If those of you who are listening to this recording care to join us, Will you read together with us 2 Timothy chapter 2? You will remember, possibly, that in our last study we were dwelling upon the link that links these two sets of steps together. The first three, crucifixion and death and burial, refer to the association with other believer with his Lord in the past. And the second three, raised together with Christ, made to sit together in heavenly places, and ultimately manifested with him in glory, in their full realisation, wait for the yet future. But the link between the two is the quickening together now. Quickening takes place before birth, and quickening has taken place in your mortal bodies. The life we now live in the flesh, that now we live by the faith of the Son of God. Well now we come another step, and the next step is in Ephesians chapter 2 where we have got this series it says in verse 5, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you saved, and hath raised us up together. Raised us up together. And the epistle to the Colossians assumes it. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And in the matter of proof and evidence, an assumption sometimes is stronger proof than a mere historic statement. He doesn't have to prove it. He says, well, seeing that he's so surely you're going to do this, if he then be risen with Christ. So it's assumed that such a doctrine is in the Scriptures. Now, whenever we speak about 2 Timothy chapter 2, you immediately think of the great principle of right division. Well, although we're not dealing with the principle of right division, you are aware, aren't you, as we read that chapter that there was a deadly error that was being entertained by some in the church through not rightly dividing with regard to the question of resurrection. They were not denying the resurrection. They didn't say Christ was not raised from the dead. They didn't say that the believer would not be raised from the dead. But they said the resurrection is past already. Now just what they meant, it's not easy for us to fathom. They couldn't have referred to the resurrection of Christ for blessed be God that is past already. So it was something that was creeping in that the Apostle felt was a deadly danger because he says these words. Who concerning the truth have heard, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. So it was enough to overthrow the faith. And he said it, it eats like a canker or a gangrene. So it wasn't a mere harmless speculation. Now of course, as I say, we are not primed up with all the errors that are all entertained by all God's people at all times. Otherwise, 
we'd be like uh, Jerome K. Jerome, when he read three men, men in a boat, wasn't it? To amuse himself, he, he read a, a book on diseases and ailments and sicknesses, and he came to the conclusion he'd had every single one of them except housemaid's knee. Well, you know, people can drive themselves nearly crazy by reading all the different symptoms, and they know they've got every complaint under the sun. So it's not wise for us to be always probing into the heresies that have shaken the church. But this one's embedded in scripture. So it's evidently something for all time. Now I did meet with some of God's people who knew the principle of right division and had read and enjoyed the teaching of the epistle to the Ephesians. But they come to this conclusion that seeing they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and seeing that Christ was set forth as a lamb before the foundation of the world, they didn't need redemption. They didn't need redemption. They all over, they didn't worry ahead. They were exempt, they were out of it. And consequently, resurrection, oh no, when a person died so far as this world was concerned, he went straight away. And they got a basis for it by a wrong interpretation of Philippians. For they translated, not as it stands, the prize of the high calling of God, but the prize of the calling on high of God. They made it a future summons, a summons that was going to take place, instead of defining the calling we have as a very high one. So, you see, of all the phases of the work of Christ, that the enemy of truth was tinkering with, it was the resurrection. And of course, you know this, however basic the death and the cross of Christ is and must be in the preaching of the gospel and in the truth afterwards. If there be no resurrection of the dead, well then we shrug our shoulders and agree with the apostle and say, so what? He said, if there be no resurrection of the dead, why am I standing in jeopardy every hour? Why have I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If there be no resurrection of the dead, you might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So anything that touches the resurrection is touching the very vital nerve of our faith in the past and our hope in the future. Well, we don't need to harp on that stream too much. But I think we do realise that this is something that is really fundamental. Well, now again, I have met and I've had to talk with someone who advocated the idea that we were raised with Christ. And consequently, his, posi his position was this. It was one of those ifs, so he never tested it. He said, if you could open the grave of any member of the body of Christ after he'd been buried three days, you'd find it was empty. He was gone. Well, it's easy to say that because you can't get an order from the government or the crown to do those sort of things. But you see his idea. So I said to him, look, you're making that statement because the word anastasis is translated resurrection, yes, and I said you're misleading all your readers because they're all assuming that in the scriptures you read the word soon together with anastasis or anastasis, yes, I said it never occurs once. Will you get this firmly in your mind? That the word that means resurrection in the full sense of the word is future. And when you read raised together with him, you never read the word anastasis, and you never read the word anesthesia. 
So you say to me, are there two words that are translated resurrection and to rise? Yes. Well now you see, if we, if we haven't sensed that, we can make all sorts of meanings out of passages and find ourselves in deadly error. So I've written on the wall and by the side of this chart the two words that we must be uh, aware about. The first one is egyro, and the second one, anastasis. And the verbal form of anastasis is anastasis. Now, whether you're aware or acquainted with them or not, you can see their difference, can't you? You can quite see that egyro has nothing in common with anastasis. You may know that Anna is a preposition which means up. Up. And stasis enters into our English stance, standing, it means to stand up. It's resurrection. But egyro doesn't mean to stand up. It means to wake up. Now, you see, in the ordinary course of, of, of affairs, a normal person, he first of all wakes up, and then he rubs his eyes and he has a look at the clock and he dithers about a bit, then he gets up. The only time when you don't do that is when a bomb drops or something, well that's an extraordinary thing. First of all you wake, and then you stand up. That's exactly what's happened, friends. We have not been raised with Christ. We have been wakened, wakened. Now, I want to prove that, because, you see, we should have two phases of truth before us. Will you turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2? And for the next two or three references, it will be the word Egyro, not the word Anastasis or Anastasi. Matthew 2, verse 13. Fourteen and twenty. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise. Well, now we've translated it, Arise. It's quite all right, quite good if you understand. But he was in a dream, and he was going to awake. And verse fourteen, and when he arose, well, when he, when he awoke is the exact translation. Not that he arose, he awoke. And then in verse 20, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother. Another dream. And verse 21, and he arose, and took the young child. So you've got to be prepared to discover that in the authorised version English, they have used the word arise, where we today would use the word awake. But I'll show you that these things that they are here in our version at the same time. Now look at chapter 8, verse 25. Chapter 8, verse 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We perish. They couldn't very well, very well, but awake him, could they? 
It couldn't say they arose him. Well, that's just where that translation breaks down. And in the next verse, then he arose. He, he was awakened. He, he was awakened, he arose, he rebuked, and so on. Well now, in Romans 13, verse 11, you'll get the word actually so translated. Romans 13, verse 11. And that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Well, if they'd have been consistent, they would have said, it is high time to arise out of sleep. But fortunately, they didn't. They've got just the word that we would use today, awake out of sleep. Now, I'll give you a passage in the epistle to the Ephesians where both words come together. Both words come together. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead. Now you've got the two words. So you've got now, awake from sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you, give thee life. I said just now that the word anistibi or anastasis is never combined with soon together with. Neither is it. This is not together with. This is simply using the two words awake, arise, awake from sleep, and arise from the dead. And in this case, it wouldn't be arising from the dead in the physical sense. They were not going to be raised from the dead. This was in a spiritual sense. So we have to remember that when we're dealing with the two passages. Well, I think that will give you some idea of the way in which this particular word is used. Egyro, strictly speaking, is to awake out of sleep. And Anastasis and Anastibi is to stand up in all the full glorious strength of newness of life, which we haven't got yet. Now another thing that you might remember is that every reference to resurrection, the word resurrection, Every reference to the word resurrection is anisteme and not egyro with one exception. So if I give you the one exception then you'll know that every other passage you come to in the New Testament when it says resurrection never uses the word egyro always uses the other word. But here we'll have the, the word in Matthew 27, 52. Matthew 27, 52. This is, of course, going back to the time of our Lord. It says in verse 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection. Now that's the only occurrence, the only time when the word egyro is translated resurrection. And it may be because these others awoke out of their sleep. Because you see, 
We're now going to face another feature. While the word to awake out of sleep is never used of the future resurrection of the believer, it is used over and over again of the actual resurrection of Christ. Could you say, why? Why? Well, there may be this one important reason. That either word could be used of him. He didn't have to take it in a series like we do. He was raised from the dead with power. But so far as you and I are concerned, we should never be raised from the dead and be like he was when he was raised from the dead. Because you remember that when he appeared after his resurrection, in order to demonstrate that he was the real person, he said, handle me and see. A spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye hath seen me have. And Thomas had said that he would not believe unless he saw the print of the nails and the spear thrust in his side. And there in resurrection, Christ evidently had the same body that he had had before. Now that's not true of me or you. The scripture definitely says, and I think we ought to get chapter and verse for this, in case there's any doubt. 1 Corinthians 15, it discusses this question of what sort of body the believer may expect to have in the future. Verse 35, 1 Corinthians 15. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Well now the apostle, he was a privileged person, he could call a person a fool without transgression. You and I have got to watch our step over that because uh, we, have no, we have no such commission. But before he answered this question, with what body do they come? Always said thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die, and that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare or naked grain. It may chance of wheat, or of some other grain, but God give it as a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. There's a likeness, there's a relationship between the seed that's died in the earth and the crop that you gather. But he said, it's not exactly the same. But God did it as a body as it hath pleased him. And he discusses that with the body of the flesh of men and beasts and heavenly bodies and bodies terrestrial and the glory of the celestial is one and so on. And then presently, he gives you the reason, possibly. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Now we are told in verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. We are distinctly told that in connection with Christ, he saw no corruption. He was the one person who died and was buried and could be raised again without any need to be changed. We must all be changed. For we belong to the corruptible. 
So in Christ's case, you could use either word indifferently, but you can't use either word of us. We are at this present moment wakened up from sleep together with him. That before ever we're sharing in the resurrection, this must take place. We must all be changed. Whether we're living or whether we're dead, it makes no difference. And there's a possibility, friends, that it makes no difference to the person himself. I have a feeling that when a person who is a believer in Christ dies, so far as the experience is concerned, it will be all one of the same as to whether he was living at the moment. And it tells you, in that split second, you know the word atom, the only occurrence of the word atom in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 15, and that's an atom of time. A portion of time that cannot be split. We speak about a split, split second. Well, you can split a second. But you can't split this time instantaneously. We shall be changed. We all must be changed. So there's a little difference, you see. That's a basic difference between Christ and all his people. He saw no corruption. Those who are buried and those who are living are both marked with corruption. So they must be changed. And we, are, we have got the word transfigured, although it's not so translated, in Philippians chapter 3. It says in verse 20, for our conversation, or as it might be translated, our citizenship, and this would have a great bearing upon the Philippians, because you remember, in the Acts of the Apostles, when Paul saw the man of Macedonia, they crossed the sea, they landed on the coast and they made their way straight away to Philippi because it was a colony. Now in the Roman times a colony was not exactly the same as Australia or New Zealand was when it was a colony. It was really a miniature Rome. Those who were citizens of Philippi were Romans. Now you remember when they put Paul in prison at Philippi? And then the earthquake shook them up and they discovered that they put Romans into that prison. They were rather frightened. So we have in Philippi a little picture of ourselves. These people who lived in Philippi, they had exemption from certain taxes. They spoke the language of Rome itself. They could hold their heads up and walk through the streets and say, we are Romans with one difference. We are not actually in Rome. And the Philippian believers could lift up their heads and say, we are citizens of heaven with one difference. We are not yet in heaven. We are down here. And so the exhortation to the Philippians could be, well, won't you walk here in this life as though you belonged to heaven's city? Just the same as you walk in this life and pride yourself that you belong to the great city of Rome. You see, I would appeal to them. So he says, for our citizenship is, I stop again because this is not the verb to be. This is that very wonderful strong word to exist as a possession and a fact. 
And this particular word gives us the word goods. Possession. It's used of Christ in Philippians 2. When it says uh, in chapter 2, who being in the form of God, it's not the verb to be. It's possessing as an actual fact. Possessing something that remains and continues unbroken. So here we have, for our citizenship remains, continues unbroken in heaven, from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well now, what's the good of telling me or telling you that you are a citizen of heaven? Because heaven's a long way off, even though when you get to argue with some people, they will tell you that of course you can't measure the spiritual state of heaven by yards or miles. But anyhow, the one thing we must confess is that we don't know the slightest, haven't got the remotest idea how to get there. Does anybody know? We don't know at all. We're in the hands of God over this. Well then that's where resurrection comes in. Otherwise, you see, we've been tantalized with a most wonderful calling that will never realize it, will never get there. But here it says, we look for the Saviour. The Saviour. The one who has saved us from our sin by the ransom that he offered. He's also going to ransom us from the grave by the offering that he made. The two must be together. So many preachers express and press upon their hearers that redemption delivers from sin. But we mustn't forget that redemption delivers from the fear of death and from its actual bondage one day. Because even though we are forgiven and then we die and there's no resurrection, well, in what way are we much different from anybody else? So this has been thought of, provided for by our God. And it says, he shall change. Not our vile body, because the word vile has now taken a deeper meaning. This is the word which gives us his humiliation. He humbled himself in chapter 2. Christ never made himself vile in our sense of the word. And so we retranslate it. Who shall change this body of our humiliation? And there's certain things to do with our body which must humiliate us. We can't help ourselves. But one day, isn't it good to know they're going to be laid aside forever, completely, and for, and for good? Who shall change this body of our humiliation, that it may be fashioned like unto his body of glory? And there the word change is the word that we could render transfigure. Oh, what a day is coming. According to the working, if you're still wondering how it's going to be brought about, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. There's the strong consolation. So there we have the stress, the emphasis, that Christ took up his life, he laid down his life, he took it again. But we are going to be changed. He had no need to be changed. We are corruptible. He saw no corruption. We are associated with him now in the quickening. But even though we are quickened, we have the outward man that's perishing. 
We are associated with him now in being awakened. But although we're awakened, we're not yet in glory. But we've got the first fruits of it in our own hearts. We've already started. We are raised together with him. Well then I think we must turn our attention to one or two other aspects of this teaching. Shall we turn now to the Matthew, once more, chapter 22, verse 23. Verse 23, I think it is. Yes. Here we have certain men that are brought before us in the scriptures the same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, say it. Then they gave him a problem. And people have raised that question from different points of view to this day. Some people haven't got anything else to worry themselves about, I should think. So they sit and worry as to, how is it possible, how would you recognize your dear ones in glory? Or I do long to be able to say, thou fool, but I mustn't, must I? But you see, surely if God has provided so wonderfully for us, you don't imagine that when the day comes you'll say, oh, fancy forgetting that. Can you believe it? We're a redeemed family. Can you tell me how Peter recognized which was Moses and which was Elijah? on the Mount of Transfiguration, it doesn't say, anybody says, excuse me Peter, allow me to introduce you, this is Moses, this is Peter. He says, no, he seemed to know. And have you never read in 1 Corinthians, then shall we know, or better still, recognize, even as we are now, recognized? So you see, there are many problems, now this problem was not recognizing in the resurrection, but they thought they had stumped the Lord because they brought forward a, a suppository case. They said, uh, if a man die having no children and his brother marry his wife and so on, well now they said there were seven. Of course that may be possible, but it's an extraordinary case, but they brought it. And you see, under the law of Moses, it could happen say twice, or even three times I suppose, because the law said that if a man and a woman married and the husband died and there were no child, then in order that the inheritance and the family should not drop out, the husband's brother or the next of kin should marry the widow. But now they've got set. And of course their problem is whose wife is she going to be when they get to glory. Well, he says, you do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Marriage belongs to this present world. It sanctifies the family. And that was its main object. But when you get to glory, that will be all over. How we should appear, scripture warns you, we know not what we shall be. We know not. And it's idle to speculate. But we know that when we shall see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. 
So he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So if you're not married yet and you still feel there's hope, well, if you don't get married now, you'll never experience either the joys of it or the accompanying sorrows of it. And they're both valuable. They're both a part of life's discipline. And they have their fruits. But here we have the statement that the angels, they apparently never have experienced either the joys or sorrows of parenthood, of family. They're all separate. And that may be one of the things which we don't know, we're speculating again, attracted some of those angels that began to tamper with things. We don't know. But we are, we are a peculiar people, you see, in this sense. We've been brought very, very near to God in the family relationships. The angels, you see, are all separate creations. There's no uncles and aunts and cousins and brothers and sisters among the angels. All separate creations. But we're a family. God intended we should be from Adam downwards. And God's ideal of glory is a father with his family. It's always so much more attractive, isn't it? Than the idea that some people have that when you get to glory, you're going to be in a sort of a magnified Westminster Abbey for thousands and thousands of years sitting in a pew singing psalms or something. I think there'll be rebellion among some of us. But this is going to be 10,000 times more wonderful than that. We're going to be at last home. We get the almost the last word in the book of the Revelation. The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. Oh yes. And so home is a sanctified little anticipation of the glory that's yet to come. And I have said and I still say that the meeting, this meeting, is not so important as your home. And there are some folks, I'm glad to say I don't think they really come to this meeting, but some folks attend a meeting as a sop to God to make up for the wretched home that they've left behind partly for them because they themselves have not entered into it. Oh no. The meeting comes second. The home comes first. And if every home was in harmony with the mind and will of God, well, we shouldn't be here long, should we? Because the day of glory will have dawned. Well then, I'll give you now, I think perhaps I'll give you just one in the Acts of the Apostles where the stress of resurrection comes. Acts 26, 16. Uh, sorry. Acts 26. I'm just wanting sure... In verse um, 6. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. For which hope, say King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. What is this hope? Were you may have enlarged upon it and spoken about the land of promise and all sorts of things 
But you see what he had in mind. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? God should raise the dead. And then if you'll notice, after he'd been going for some time, verse 24, and as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. And so you see, it was something which was not entertained by men in general. It seems awful to think that people could live and have a form of worship but had no hope with regard to the future. No wonder it had no power. No wonder lives could not be changed. And so the Apostle is stressing it here. And in the verse 16 that I had in mind, we've got the word to rise, but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. Rise. This is the word for resurrection. Rise. He's standing upon his feet, of course, figuratively and just uh, by using the word's analogy, but he didn't say to Paul, wake up. No, no, stand upon thy feet, because that is the idea of the word. Now there's another combination of the word, anastasis. This word, anastasis, is combined with the preposition ek, out of. I think we ought to get that one as we're assembling them together. Philippians 3, verse 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Well, now you might say to the Apostle Paul, well, you, you won't have to bother about attaining to the resurrection of the dead. You can't avoid it if God's going to raise you from the dead. He's got something in front of him. So he doesn't say the simple word resurrection. He says that I might attain unto the ex the out-resurrection, that which is out from among the dead. So here we have something which is peculiar and is associated not with our blessed hope, but with an added prize. Verse 14, I press toward the mark. And then we might remember that we are told that in the resurrection, Christ is the first fruits, and the resurrection will be in order. Everyone in his own order. Then also you get the very wonderful provision made in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which seems a, a kindly act on the part of God, when it says in verse 16, no, verse 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or go before them that are asleep, the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. God is not going to separate. They're all going to be at one. As though, he says, before ever you're ushered into the presence chamber, you'll be perfectly satisfied that you're all there. You won't be looking around to see if anybody's lost his way or not arrived. God says whether you're dead or alive. One won't go before the other. So God has got his order right the way through. And then, surely we ought to remember that in the Gospel according to John, we have that most wonderful claim of Christ. He stood beside a tomb, 
He stood beside a grave. And the man had been there buried now for four days. And he didn't wait until he'd raised the man from the dead before he said it. He said this first. Before ever he raised that man, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that is living and believing on me shall never die. And then, to think of it, friends, in the chapter where he makes that most tremendous claim, in that self-same chapter, we have these words, Jesus wept. If anybody could have been excused and pardoned for shedding no tear, it was the one who was the resurrection and the life. But he wept. Surely we have someone who is not untouched with a feeling of our infirmities, and yet the mighty one who was raised from the dead to die no more. So friends, let's be thankful that we can not only be associated with Christ in the darkness and the death, we're associated with him now by being quickened and we're associated with him now by being raised together. But we're going to remember when we say it, aren't we? To be awakened in anticipation of the yet future moment when he shall say, Arise, stand upon thy feet. All oh, that will be glory indeed. But shall we minimize the present anticipation because it's not the complete thing? No. All oh, let us realize that we can be addressed by the apostles who says to us, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. And I think the more we contemplate our association with him, the risen one, the more power there will be in the word that we preach and the word that we study. So may he give us grace to walk worthy of such a wonderful high calling.